Why Catholic is made possible by generous patrons. If you're blessed by this podcast, consider supporting it by purchasing something from the Why Catholic merch shop on Etsy. Link is in the show notes. Original designs on sweatshirts, t-shirts, hats, decals, and more. Stay tuned to the end of this episode to hear how you can get a special discount. Thanks for supporting Why Catholic. In 2014, I started a new career. I left my full-time job in education and my part-time job as a pastor, and I took a position in education technology sales. I had never formally done sales before, so there was a steep learning curve. The steepest was this notion of a quota. Every quarter, everyone started at zero, and the company gave you a goal to hit. And no matter how well you did in the past, every new quarter you went back to zero. It's intimidating. I didn't sleep well those first couple of weeks in my new sales job because all of a sudden I had a number over my head. One thing I learned very quickly is that every salesperson has an individual goal, but the most important goal is the company goal. And then the most important goal after that is the team goal. I knew what my number was and I had conversations about it with my manager. My manager knew what their number was based on the collective team and had conversations about it with their manager and their manager knew what their overall number was and had conversations about it with their manager. If our team goal was being met, there was a lot less pressure on individual performers. But if we were falling short as a team, managers were pushing us individual contributors to close more deals. There were quarters when I didn't do well but others on the team overperformed. And there were quarters when I blew my number out of the water and I was able to help carry those who had struggled that particular quarter. In other words, while everyone had their personal goals, we all worked together to hit our team and company goals. Why am I telling you this? This analogy is helpful in understanding the Catholic doctrine of the collective treasury of the church. Hi, this is Justin Hibbert, and you're listening to Why Catholic, my podcast about the what and why of Catholicism. We are in a series about the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Since most of this podcast is made up of episodes about 17 minutes in length, a lot of these concepts build on each other. If you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to episodes 51 through 53 before listening to this one. Today, I want to discuss this notion of the collective treasury of the church. When I say church treasury in this context, I don't mean the Vatican Bank. I mean a collective treasury of charity that exists for the benefit of all saints. And since there's a communion of saints across all time and space, that charity bank is accessible to saints in heaven, those in purgatory becoming saints, and pilgrims on earth walking towards sainthood. Here's what the Catechism of the Catholic Church states in paragraphs 1475 through 1477. Quote, in the communion of saints, a perennial link of charity exists between the faithful who have already reached their heavenly home, those who are expiating their sins in purgatory, and those who are still pilgrims on earth. Between them there is, too, an abundant exchange of all good things. In this wonderful exchange, the holiness of one profits others, well beyond the harm that the sin of one could cause others. Thus, recourse to the communion of saints lets the contrite sinner be more promptly and efficaciously purified of the punishments for sin. We also call these spiritual goods of the communion of saints the church's treasury, which is not the sum total of the material goods which have accumulated during the course of the centuries. On the contrary, the treasury of the church is the infinite value which can never be exhausted, which Christ's merits have before God. They were offered so that the whole of mankind could be set free from sin and attain communion with the Father. In Christ, the Redeemer himself, the satisfactions and merits of his redemption exist and find their efficacy. 
This treasury includes as well the prayers and good works of the Blessed Virgin Mary. They are truly immense, unfathomable, and even pristine in their value before God. In the treasury, too, are the prayers and good works of all the saints, all those who have followed in the footsteps of Christ the Lord and by his grace have made their lives holy and carried out the mission the Father entrusted to them. In this way, they attained their own salvation and at the same time cooperated in saving their brothers in the unity of the mystical body. End quote. In other words, there exists a mystical charity bank for Christians, and we can make deposits into that bank, and that charity can be extended to those in particular need of charity. If you're a Protestant listening to this, you might be thinking, this is a nice idea, but you're totally just making this stuff up. So I want to start by explaining the biblical basis for this perennial link of charity, as well as the systematic theological manner in which the church has come to define this concept. When I say systematic theology, I mean a logical expression based on a building block of principles. So starting with scripture, let me explain how Catholics get to this idea of a collective treasury of the church. 1 Corinthians 12 centers on the idea that the Holy Spirit gives each Christian particular giftings in order to build up and edify the collective body of Christ, the church. In Protestant circles, they call these spiritual gifts. In fact, there's a number of curricula and programs put forth by various Protestants about discovering one's spiritual gifts. And among Protestants, there's a general consensus that each Christian is given spiritual gifts, and the purpose of those gifts are to benefit the entire body of Christians. In Catholicism, we tend to use the word charisms instead of spiritual gifts, C-H-A-R-I-S-M-S. In that word charism, you may recognize the word charity. The word charity actually comes from the Greek word agape, which is the word the Bible uses to denote the highest form of love, the love that God has for each of us. This is why in 1 Corinthians 13, some translations say love is patient, love is kind, etc., while other translations use the word charity. Charity is patient, charity is kind, etc. I personally prefer the Catholic term charism over spiritual gift because when using the term spiritual gifts, the focus tends to be on the gift that God has given me, whereas charism, which contains the word charity, reminds me that the purpose of these gifts that God gives to me is for the use of charity. Whereas charism, which contains the word charity, reminds me that the purpose of those spiritual gifts that God gives me is to be used for charity. This is exactly what St. Paul says in the next chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. Quote, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing, end quote. In other words, if you exercise your spiritual gift or charism without love or charity, then you're doing it all wrong. Catholics take this idea of spiritual gifts a step further than Protestants. Since we believe in the communion of saints, which was the focus of episode 52, we believe that the church community is much more than just the Christians on earth. There is some mystical communion that exists between Christians on earth, Christians in purgatory, and Christians in heaven. When St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 12.26 says, quote, If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. End quote. This isn't just limited to the church on earth. Rather, the suffering and the honoring is experienced across all time and space. 
In other words, I can exercise my charisms in such a way that it not only benefits Christians on earth, but also those in purgatory. A Christian in heaven may exercise their charism in such a way that it benefits Christians on earth as well as Christians in purgatory. Think of it like a food bank. People who are able and are generous take food to the food bank. Those that are in need go to the food bank and take that food that they can't afford to buy. As long as more people are giving than are taking, the food bank is able to do what it's intended to do because it has a positive food balance. It's sort of like my experience in sales. When more people exceeded their sales goal than those that fell short, the company did well together. However, if the inverse happens, then the company is at risk. Perhaps a little metaphysics lesson might be helpful here as well. We believe that because God is omniscient, meaning all-knowing, and omnipresent, meaning everywhere, he is outside of time. What is time? Time is distance divided by speed, and as physicists have noted, the closer we move towards the speed of light, the slower time moves. If it were possible to get to the speed of light, time would essentially freeze. There's a really good illustration of this in the 2014 film Interstellar. Now, God created light, therefore God is not constrained by something he created. He therefore experiences time, distance, and speed differently than we do. For us, we experience time linearly, but God does not. We have a present moment that we're experiencing now, and anything prior to this moment is called the past. Anything ahead of this moment is the future. We can't fathom how God experiences events, but we might make a hypothesis that he experiences all events in all of history and every moment. Thus, there is no such thing as past, present, and future for God. We can take this a step further and say that if God is omnipotent, meaning all-powerful, then he has the ability to apply his power at any moment that falls within the linear timeline of the universe. In other words, he could intervene at what we experience as the present moment in an event that occurred in the year 1267, for example. We wouldn't know what he did because for us, we would only be experiencing the present moment that benefited from the past. The past would always remain inaccessible to us, but accessible to God. Thus, when we interact with God, we are in a sense time traveling because we're interacting with one who can time travel, or rather, who is not constrained by time and experiences time differently than we do. And this is why Catholics believe that there's only one Mass. When we participate in the Mass, we are in a sense bending time and space. The Mass is the Last Supper, it is the crucifixion, it is the present moment, it is the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's not a representation of those events. Mass is a portal, so to speak, whereby we participate in all of those past and future events in the present moment. I talk about this in episodes 9, 10, 14, 15, and 16 in case you'd like to hear more about the metaphysics of mass. Thus, whenever we interact with God, the present isn't just open to us, but so is the future and the past. We know about the future, of course. We often pray that God will intervene in some way that affects the future outcome. But have we ever considered asking God to intervene in some way that would affect the present or the past? I know this is a bit mind-blowing, but if God experiences every moment simultaneously, then there is no past or future for him like there is for us. 
I tell you that because it's important to understand that our spiritual gifts are in fact spiritual. If they are provided by a God that is outside of our metaphysical constraints, then we can imagine that God can use these gifts or charisms beyond our constraints of time and space. Thus, my charism, which scripture says was given for the benefit of the entire church, does not just benefit Christians on earth at this moment, but Christians of all time. This is the metaphysical premise of this idea of a collective church treasury based on scripture and systematic theology, philosophy, and physics. It's a lot to think about, but remember the Christian church is 2,000 years old. It's had a lot of time to think about and develop these ideas. In Catholic circles, you may hear the phrase, offer it up. This is a Catholic colloquialism, meaning to do something pious or charitable with the specific intention of adding to the collective treasury of the church. For example, before praying the rosary, I might say, God, I offer this rosary for my friend who is sick. In Catholic churches, you'll typically see candles that people are invited to light. These are prayer candles. We light these candles as an expression of prayer for someone or something. So as one is lighting the candle, they may say, God, I offer up this candle for so-and-so. When you attend Mass, you may notice a sign in the entryway noting that the Mass is being offered for an individual who is sick or maybe who has died. This is why Catholics use the term intentions. For example, during Mass, there's always a segment for intercessory prayer. The person leading those prayers might say, let us pray for the intentions we hold in our hearts. Back in my Protestant days, when I was working at a Catholic school, I didn't understand this word intentions. In Protestant circles, we use the term prayer requests. So I was like, what in the world is an intention? The reason Catholics use the word intentions is because there's an understanding that my prayers or efforts are intended to be deposited in the collective treasury of the church, which may be for the benefit of a specific individual or situation or the general benefit of the church. Let me explain why this is so beautiful and helpful. You know, a lot of times we may not feel like doing something particularly pious or charitable. There are always times we wake up and don't feel like going to Mass. Here's what you can do. Just before you do that thing, pray, God, I offer this for, and then name a specific intention. For example, before getting out of the car and going to Mass, pray, God, I offer this Mass for so-and-so or such-and-such. I'll be honest in saying sometimes I lack the motivation to pray my rosary. When I make it about someone or something else beyond myself, I am much more motivated to do it. I'm not just praying the rosary for my sake and my relationship with God. I'm also offering it up for someone else's benefit. In doing so, the spiritual discipline doesn't just benefit us and our relationship with Jesus. It also benefits someone else. Now, we don't claim to know exactly how God accounts for this treasury. We don't know how much each act we offer up is worth or how exactly God applies it to our specific intentions. For example, if I offer up a mass for a particular soul in purgatory, I don't know how much that benefits the individual in purgatory. Does it take a year off their time as if time were even the same in the afterlife? That we don't know. In the same way, when we pray for someone, we never know how God is going to apply those prayers. Why does God sometimes seem to answer those prayers miraculously? And sometimes he doesn't, or at least he doesn't in the way we think he should. So why even pray for others? Why bother offering up these acts for an individual or group of people? The answer is this. In God's infinite kindness, he uses his people to participate in his kingdom work. 
Think about it. God does not have to include us. Jesus could have come to earth and never called a disciple to follow him and still accomplished everything. God could heal an individual with or without our prayers, but he includes us in the process. Scripture tells us to pray for each other. Why? The answer is because we care about the things we are invested in. When you give to a charity, you invest yourself in that cause and you care more about it, don't you? It's the same way with the collective treasury of the church. The more we pray for someone, the more we are investing ourselves in their lives. Going all the way back to episode six, I explained how God created us for community. Christianity, like Judaism, isn't just about one's personal relationship with God. It is also about our relationships with each other. And what better way to be invested in each other's spiritual and physical well-being than for us to personally invest ourselves in their lives? When I was in college, I was very interested in one girl who lived halfway across the country, but I was dating a girl who lived on campus. The girl halfway across the country that I was interested in would later become my wife. Now, even though we were interested in each other, she, being the sweet soul that she is, told me that she was praying for my relationship with my girlfriend. I remember one time she said, you know, I'm really thankful for your relationship with your girlfriend. And I was like, what? Why would you be thankful for me and my girlfriend, even though we have feelings for each other? She said, I spend time praying for you. And the more I've prayed for you, the closer I've gotten to God. Me praying for your relationship with your girlfriend has aided me in my relationship with God. Uh, Isn't that the absolute truth when it comes to charity? The more we give of ourselves to others, even when it hurts, the more we also benefit. It's like God was onto something when he conjured up the idea of sacrifice and sacrificial love. God being a communal being of three persons has also created us for a community. Thus, he longs not just to bring us closer to him, but to also bring us closer to each other. One of Jesus' dying wishes, which he prayed for in the Garden of Gethsemane before his arrest, was that his followers would be one as he and the Father are one. Thus, to move towards that unity is, in a sense, to move towards God. And to move towards disunity and disharmony is to move away from him. A collective treasury is like a community well. It is a source of nourishment which brings us together as a universal society. I want to end by doing a little recap. Why do we believe in the mystical collective treasury of the church? First, we believe that all Christians are in communion together. The mystical body of Christ, a.k.a. the church, extends beyond time and space. Thus, the church is made up of those Christians on earth on their way to sainthood, those in purgatory being purified towards sainthood, and those who have fully reached sainthood in heaven. Just as God is one being in three distinct persons, so the church is one body of Christ made up of Christians in three distinct states. Christians on earth, the church militant, Christians in purgatory, the church suffering, and Christians in heaven, the church triumphant. God gives Christians spiritual gifts or charisms for the good of the church. And because our communion exists beyond time and space, those charisms can be used for the benefit of all Christians in whichever state, earth, purgatory, or in heaven. This concept is important to understand as we talk about other Catholic doctrines like praying for the dead and indulgences, which will be the topics of our upcoming episodes. 
Thank you for joining me for Why Catholic. Be sure to subscribe to Why Catholic wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also subscribe to my Substack site and get the next episode in your email inbox. As a subscriber, you get a special discount code to the Why Catholic Etsy store. If you've been blessed by this podcast and you're feeling generous, there's also a way to financially support it, and patrons get some extra perks. To become a free subscriber or a patron, just go to whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe. Also join me on Instagram at whycatholicpodcast, all one word. Thanks again for listening. My name is Justin Hibbard, and this is Why Catholic. God bless you.